0: Hello, and welcome to Survival Skills, a podcast of great conversations between strange bedfellows. Insightful people you might not normally hear, sharing ideas on how to make a better world. I'm your host, Sarah Stevens, Director of the Platform for Innovation and Dialogue with Cuba. I'd like to begin by introducing my guests and explaining how and maybe why the three of us ended up having this conversation today. I'll be talking with John Powell and Dr. Tanya Singer.
1: Please welcome John Powell.
0: John Powell is an internationally recognized deep thinker who currently leads the Othering and Belonging Institute at the University of California, Berkeley a multidisciplinary research institute focusing on equity and inclusion. Tanya Singer is a German psychologist and social neuroscientist, whose research focus is on compassion and empathy. She is the scientific head of the social neuroscience lab of the Max Planck Society in Berlin. Tanya and John joined me for a convening and five-day trip to Cuba. We were there to explore the concepts of othering and belonging. And this conversation today is really a continuation of the one that we started in Havana. John, I know this isn't fair and that you could spend a semester answering this question, but will you please start by explaining these terms for us, othering and belonging?
1: Right. So... Othering and belonging are interesting concepts, and when we think about them, they're actually everywhere. Othering is basically refusing to recognize someone as fully human, as fully equal, as having full dignity. Sometimes it's not seeing someone at all. Sometimes it's seeing someone as a threat or to be exploited for one's own use. And so when we look at othering, we can see it in small examples, like not speaking to someone or not inviting someone to be part of your group. There's also more pernicious examples of segregation, of uh, building walls, of genocide. Those are all expressions of othering. So at a group level, it can be race, it can be gender, it can be sexual orientation, it can be age. So we've all had expressions of othering where we felt like we didn't belong. It's not my group. Whether it's at a school or a party or a dance. But there's also othering that's more systematic where one group does it to another group, or a government does it to a group, or it could even be an institution or a structure. So when someone who's in a wheelchair shows up at a building and there's no ramp, the building is a sense saying, you don't belong here, this is not your place.
0: So for those of us who believe in equity, clearly othering is a problem. What's the solution?
1: When we think about othering, We also think that the solution sometimes to othering is saming, which is not. To say that someone's just like us, that appears to be a good thing because it's trying to recognize the other person's humanity, but it's on my terms. They have to be just like me in order to be fully recognized. So the solution to othering is not saming, but belonging. Belonging is recognizing someone's full humanity and that belonging is a co-creation process which means everyone participates in the construction of the thing that they belong to. So it's different than inclusion, because inclusion is that you are joining something that's already there. And the example I like to use is James Baldwin, when he was being asked to join a very famous Mm -hmm. literary community in the United States. And they said, we noticed that you're gay, please don't rub that in our face. And we know you have a lot of black friends, Don't bring them to our club. So you can join, but leave important aspects of yourself at the table. It was Clinton's don't ask, don't tell. You can join the military if you're gay or lesbian, trans, but don't tell us. We don't want to know about it. Hide that part of yourself. That's a weak kind of inclusion. Belonging would be, say, bring your full self and help us define the military. Help us define this club. Help us define America. Yes, America is changing. It has to change as more and more people come in because they come with their own understanding, with their own history, with their own culture. They don't get to make America into their culture, but neither do they have to just adapt. So belonging requires co-creation, building bridges between people who are apparently different.
0: Tanya, I know that these ideas resonate with you and actually relate to your work, even though you come at them from a scientific perspective, different from John. You're a psychologist and a social neuroscientist. How is it that you and John seem to be on similar paths of inquiry?
2: So I'm using different terms, but I think the phenomena I study as a psychologist and neuroscientist are related to what John just described. So I'm doing research on, on empathy, compassion, and especially on the question how we can cultivate to widen the circle of compassion so it's to become more inclusive of perhaps identities we usually think as outgroup. So we're working a lot about um, what in social psychology is called in-group, outgroup dynamics. So you feel a very strong identity with some people and you're exclude from your circle of identity other people. Like what John just said, you can ignore an outgroup, but it can even get so detrimental that you dehumanize a person. It becomes so aggressive that you can even kill people. And then we try to work on understanding what are the conditions, how you can, you know, resolve this in-group, out-group dynamic in widening your circle of identity. So I think that's what John also alluded to, uh, widening the circle of compassion, opening your circle of tolerance. Tell me
0: more. H- how do you widen a circle of identity or open a circle of tolerance or belonging? And how do you study that?
2: What we did in our, in our research is to use a kind of contemplative and psychological mental techniques to train people on how to actually get into our inner process of achieving this widening of compassion uh, to overcome this kind of in-group, out-group. We call it also sometimes out-group hate and in-group favoritism. And so our works relate, just that I have a perspective as a psychologist and neuroscientist looking into brains as well. So it's, when you look into brains, it's a bit individualistic <laughs> because you can't scan societies. Imagine that, a brain scan of society. John,
0: do you think about
1: brains? I certainly think about brains. And to have a healthy brain, belonging is important. So first of all, we can measure. We can see the stress on the brain when we're deeply othered. Also, nature thought it was pretty cool that we recognize human beings when we see them. So when we see another human being, there's a part of the brain that lights up. When someone is deeply othered, that part of the brain does not light up. And so at a deep level, at an unconscious level, when we deeply other someone, we don't recognize them as human. And not only do bad things happen to that group as a result of that, it also happens to us. We're denying part of ourselves. So it's clear that the, the kind of support we need to belong actually supports a healthy brain.
2: Perhaps I might add uh, to you know what John said. Of course, as a neuroscientist, just an example. If we want to see how Empathic brain signals are modulated by bigger group identities. We tell, for example, someone next to the scanner is belonging you know, to your in-group or to your out-groups so or whatever. We have like football fans lying in the scanner and then we say the person out there is belonging to a, you know, to a rival football team or to another nation or a different religion. And so just to name the other, to belong to another group identity, another nation and so on, Uh, we can show that then the empathic signal towards suffering of this other person is gone and people basically um, feel reward and Schadenfreude is seeing someone suffering, they consider outgroup. So you can also show that in the brain. Once you have identified or attributed a person, whether this person is really belonging to this group or not, doesn't matter. You think that this person has other beliefs or is another nationality or different religion, then you you don't use the the perspective taking network in the brain anymore. So you're not thinking about this person anymore as an intentional being who has beliefs and intentions and feelings, but you dehumanize this person almost as if it would be an object. And this objectification or what we call dehumanization of a person allows then that you become very aggressive, or you can even, disting, you know, extinguish um, a group or a person.
1: Right. When we other, one of the a number of things happen. One of them is that we flatten people, and as we sort of limit them into a singular dimension, it's also easy then to objectify them and even harm them. And the things that support this is one, the speed of change, and two, the stories we live in. So we know, for example, rapid change creates stress on the human organism on the, on the brain. We need time to actually process change. And what's happening now in society is that we're having rapid change. And we're having change at a speed that most of us can't process without tremendous stress. And what we get from our leaders, from culture, from uh, opinion makers, is two different stories. One of them is, Life is happening too fast, and we're losing all the things that were important to us. We're losing our identity, we're losing our religion, we're losing what it means to be an American or British or French, and it's because of those scary people, those others, in which case we actually turn on people very fast. When that happens, uh, again, the brain processes information very differently. It's actually playing on fear, the fear of the other. You're afraid of changes happening in the world, you can't accommodate them. The fear, the anxiety is caused by that despicable other. The flip side, of course, is belonging. We can also tell stories which lets us see that we are connected to each other, that there's something bigger than us individually. In a great example, think about Christians. There are 1.3 billion Christians in the world. They somehow see themselves as related, as having a shared story that actually binds them together in some interesting ways, which is actually really important because a lot of times when people hear about othering and belonging or in-groups, out-groups, they they think it's hardwired into being human. They think it's just a natural outgrowth of our tribalism, which existed for the first two million years of our existence. We've only been around about two million years. But tribes were small generally about 50 people, sometimes as big as 150, but never any larger than that. There was no tribes of white people. There were no tribes of black people. There were no tribes of Americans. There were no tribes of Christians. That's too big. 350 million million Americans, that's not a tribe. That's something else. And what holds us together are stories. And so we can begin to construct new stories that invites new sets of relationship so we're not stuck in sort of these small, antagonistic, fearful tribes.
0: Help me out here. You just talked about changes in identity over generations, but earlier you were talking about rapid changes in identity. Which is it?
1: One way of thinking about identity, and particularly othering and belonging, is how durable it is and how transitory it is. And some of our identities we think of as stable, and usually they're not as stable as we think they are. Others we think of as as a very transitory. So this morning I was a Mets fan. This afternoon I don't care about the Mets. But I think about being black, fairly durable. Although I'm old enough that when I was born I was not black. I was colored or a Negro. And so our identities constantly shift. And what holds that identity in place are a set of things outside of me. So I didn't decide to become black. I didn't decide to become African American. And part of the durability also relates to both change and threat. And one of the things that's happening in society now is that many of the things that sort of held our identity in place, most of them unconscious, are actually changing. So the speed of change around technology, the speed of change around demographic, the speed of change around globalization, the speed of change around climate change, the speed of change around pandemics, it actually calls upon us to be in the world in a different way. And our ability to change is limited. So can we create more durable belonging can we make the othering if it happens at all very transitory.
0: Is this a time when othering is more durable?
1: Well I think one of the things that's going on because the speed of change people see their identities being challenged in a way that we normally don't because again the speed of change is actually uncomfortable and so if you're an American you know you see the country changing. If you're white American it's like well when I grew up White America was the dominant cultural expression, it was the norm, I didn't even have to notice it. But now I'm seeing Latinos, I'm seeing black men in the White House who are actually not serving food. I'm seeing gay marriages. When I was growing up, it was a given, first of all, that race was biological, now people are questioned that. It was given that there are only two genders, and now people talk about being transgender, people talk about being flexible, it's like what? And that doesn't just affect the people who embrace that. It affects me. It affects all of us. So the the change is creating this huge anxiety. And we don't have a language for what's next. And what the right has been able to do is to say, yes, the future is coming at us really fast. We're not ready for it. So let's not have the future. Let's go back to the past. And that's why a lot of the authoritarian leaders come with a a brand, we're gonna return to when America was great. We're gonna return to when British was great. We're gonna return to when India was great. And what they're really saying is that we don't like what's happening, we don't like the future. So let's not have it.
0: Well, that sounds ominous. Is this some kind of global othering crisis?
1: Well, we are in a worldwide crisis. 60% of the world now, more than 60% lives under authoritarian leadership, and the numbers are going up very fast. The way that we've made meaning for the last hundreds of years is actually being called into question. Uh, The technological change that we like with our new phones and our new computers is actually also putting stress on us. We literally can say that people looking at their smartphones and, and being on them all the time, it's not just convenient, it's actually changing the structure of their brain. Now you have a cell phone and you can look at things happening all around the world. That's great. How do we process it? we don't process it well. We, ha- we haven't created a mechanism to process it. The, the smartphones, the artificial intelligence is challenging even what it means to be human. And so that creates this very fertile ground of anxiety. And again, the right wing has been able to say, stop. It's too much. It's too fast.
2: Tanya, is that what you are seeing in your brain research? I totally agree with what what John said and, and as psychologists we, we tend to think uh, you know about different motivational systems you, you, you know like you have power system, achievement system, you have threat system and so I think John just described how basically when you lose your identity or, or things change too fast threat system gets activated and I guess... This might also explain a little bit that we have increasing stress-related diseases in the Western civilization, you know. We have increased depression rates in children already. But I think another factor which contributes to this hyperactivation of the stress system and of the, of the threat system is that we have, in biological terms, we call them care or affiliative systems. And these, they are not really activated so much anymore in our big work system or like systems of power, perhaps in the private life. So when we talk about compassion, love, and affiliation in the private life, I think everyone ac- accepts it. Everyone say, of course, I love my husband, I love my wife, I love my children. But when we talk about economy, you never see any formulation of compassion, affiliation. So in a way, I think we have banned the whole need and motivation of care, affiliation, and what, what you would, I think, call belonging, trusting and belonging and feeling really part of a whole and part of nature and part of life, that is less and less activated because we are working in a system where this basically doesn't, is not incentivized. You know, the, the systems are all about competition. And so I guess in addition to too much fast change, We are trapped in a loop where we constantly want to achieve and grow and gain power and gaining more money, more consumption goods and so on. And if that happens, you are also constantly afraid that you would lose your rank and that you would lose your consumption goods and that you would lose your house and you would lose the position you had. And so the threat system gets double activated by too fast change and by a constant fear of losing and do, being judged not to be good enough. So when the threat system is activated, it is very, very hard actually to, at the same time, go into compassion and care and affiliation because these, these motivational systems come with opening the heart and they come, they come with the feeling of safety and being safe. You know, It's like mother and child. A child feels safe with the mother if the mother is in compassion and care. And I think what we try, I think, through this mental and meditation-based cultivation and practices is to, to regain access more internally to activating the system of affiliation and care and, you know, which also comes with soothing and relaxing the body so that our system gets in balance again. But I think the same is true that we have to regain balance in the whole world by, by changing the narrative again, so that, that the institutional design gets changed in a way that care and affiliation and belonging and relationships and really feeling safe with others and trusting, in a global sense, becomes the priority, so that we rebalance the whole thing. <laughs> because if you don't change the design, like how the system works, uh, inner work is not enough.
0: John. How would you at the Othering and Belonging Institute suggest we do large-scale societal change and inner micro-change at the same time? Well,
1: one of the things that makes modern humans particularly interesting animals is our ability to imagine. And when you think about it, it's the ability to think about something and create something that you don't see before you. Some people are good at imagining things, but some people are not. Some people are still struggling. It's like, I don't see that. You know, so we have to help with that. We have to sort of lift up the examples. And we have to acknowledge people's anxiety, frustrations, and fears. So all of us who have children, you know, it's not enough to say, don't be afraid. We turn on the light and say, there's no snake under the bed. But it seems to me this is what life is calling upon us to do. And this is what we're trying to do at the Institute.
0: Sounds good. Can you share with us a specific example of that?
1: Right, the uh, Florida Restoration, which returned the vote potentially, is still struggling to 1.4 million returning citizens in Florida. So Florida, part of the South, and what most people may be aware of is that one of the things after the Civil War, what the South did was to say, if you've been in jail, you can't vote, and some of them for the rest of your life. Now in a democracy, to say to a group of people you can't vote is to say you don't really belong. And it's not just voting. Sometimes you can't get into public housing, you can't get a student loan. So it's really all of these mechanisms to say you don't belong. And you come back as an other. And it's racially coded, because while the majority of those people are white, the disproportionate number are black. And so it's seen as a black thing in Florida. But it's part of the Florida Constitution. To change it, you need the 60% of the voters to support it. Every pundit said it's not possible to get 60% of the voters in Florida to support something like that, especially because it's seen as benefiting blacks. And what we had in Florida was two guys, and many, many more, but two guys in particular, one of them white, rural, a Trump supporter, one of them black, urban, also returning citizen, coming together and creating a dialogue and a practice where they shared their experience, where they shared their suffering, where they talked to each other. And they went around the state talking to people, in a sense, creating a strong discourse about the humanity of returning citizens, whether they're black, white. And people would ask, when you're talking to the opposition, when you're talking to people who don't agree with you, what is your strategy? And they said, our strategy is love. And love is about seeing other people, about making space for other people, about even when you disagree, still holding on to other people's humanity. And not only did they win by getting more than 60% of the votes, they got 65%. They got a million more votes than any candidate running for statewide office in Florida. And so this is the largest re-enfranchisement in America since 1920.
0: Thank you for that inspirational answer, but for all the beauty of it, it sounds very difficult. Do you have an approach that makes the work easier, or is it, is it just a lot of hard work?
1: Well, it's certainly not just a lot of hard work, because, again, there will be times when we'll be challenged, but we're not just telling s- hard, suffering stories. We're also experiencing joy, so if it's worthwhile, yeah, it's work it's also so exhilarating, you feel so alive.
0: And Tanya, do you find that or something similar to that in your
2: work? What, what John just said, you know, if you, if you give talks and you show that through 30 minutes of, you know, meditation-based or mental training-based, mental practice, going inside and really practicing to cultivate these other motivational system in yourself, what we showed, we did a huge study 300 people all across the board. they were between 20 and 55, a large range in age. They engaged in a three-month mental training module. And one was on mindfulness, the other was on compassion, like really working on these care and affiliation motives. And the third one was on perspective-taking. It's a kind of a bird's-eye perspective where you don't only identify with your identity and your beliefs, but you learn how to actually really understand that other people are holding different beliefs, which are not your beliefs, but they are still also just beliefs. And no one is right or wrong, it's just different beliefs.
0: So what did you do? What did you ask people to do?
2: What we, for example, implemented for a beautiful 10 minutes practice in this resource project, Uh, by the way, we followed it up with 90 different measures. So we measured the cortisol system, the brain changes, the behavioral changes, changes in attention, in compassion, in body reaction, in stress system. So we had 90 different measures. But not talking about the science right now, what I observed is we implemented 10 minutes, what we call contemplative diets, because it's not a mental exercise you do alone, but you do it with a real person. So imagine 300 people were connected every week with a new person from this participant sample, and by phone they would interact 10 minutes, asking very profound questions, and the other would just listen, without interruption, just empathic listening. And these contemplative diets, even though they look so simple, 10 minutes, you know, it's not a lot in your day, but you do it over many weeks with many different people, and they really glued together this group in a way that there was a real social cohesion happening, a real coming together. And it was very, very touching. Before we had any data, you know, we asked the people before the diet, how close do you feel to the other person? And after this 10 minutes practice of deep listening, how close do you feel now? they all felt closer after this 10-minute exercise of deep listening and sharing very personal and vulnerable insights from their day. And what we also observed is that this kind of connectedness, perhaps it's also a feeling of belonging, you know, it kind of spread. It was not only that you felt closer to the person you just did a diet with, But when you were coupled in the next week with a new person you didn't know, you could really see that's basically what John called sharing common humanity. You could really see how people felt closer and connected to other people, even if they didn't know them. So I think one of our biggest illness of our Western society is the extent, is a huge exaggerated individualism, like we were, you know, like completely disconnected individuals, and and, at, you know, at the same time, this feeling, I always have to do it alone uh, because you have lost the sense of interdependence and of interconnectedness of all being. And so subjective loneliness, the feeling of subjective loneliness is predicting when you will die, mortality, all kind of cardiovascular diseases. So it's not just a fluffy, soft, wearable. OK, that's real data.
0: Isn't there anyone doing anything with it? No
2: official or government response. We have now a ministry in UK. It's called the the Loneliness Ministry, and it is actually dealing with this kind of health threat of people. Even though they are globally more connected than ever through Facebook and through internet, there is still this increase in felt disconnection. And through this kind of deep listening exercises we did in Compassion, at least you could. You could reopen the sense of really, you know, like reconnecting with someone on a very deep, um, you know, level of also vulnerability and shared humanity, and real listening. I think we are all longing very deeply to reconnect in a deeper way than Facebook. And so I think if we could, you know, reintroduce spaces in cities, have these kind of practices in schools then I guess slowly, slowly we could bring this kind of experience in an everyday, because my experience is that if people start practicing, really have an inner experience of how this feels when you widen the circle of compassion, when you're really empathic, when you're really seen, usually there is there is an instantaneous shift which is really strong and is, I think, Uh, stronger than every talk or every paper you can read. It, It needs to go through a lived experience.
0: Well, this is so interesting to me. I find this particular part so important. You know, we talk a lot about the value of narrative and other things. But I think that just this idea of slowing down and recognizing that there's value in simply being present with others and maybe doing deep listening, whatever that may mean, it feels to me like a very important starting point, a very central part of the way out. John, any closing thoughts?
1: You know, we've been thinking about this for a long time and trying to feel it in the heart. And so I would invite your listeners to share with us and reach out to us. No one is an expert on life. You know, we sort of all trying to get through it. And we get through it better if we get through it together. This work can be hard, but one of the things that makes it delightful is the people you do it with. So hopefully you have a community, and I'm glad to count Sarah and Tanya as part of my new emerging community.
0: Thank you, John. And listeners, you can reach out to John at Belonging. Dot berkeley.edu. More information about Tanya and her work can be found at tanyasinger.de. You can also check us out at Cubaplatform.org. One more time. John is at belonging.berkley.edu. Tanya is at tanyasinger.de and we are at Cubaplatform.org. Well, thank you both so much for taking the time to do this. I'm really, really happy that we can share this conversation more broadly with people who are working in their ways, in their fields every day toward, you know, a better world. And thank you listeners for joining John Powell, Tanya Singer, and myself, Sarah Stevens, on today's podcast of Survival Skills. See you next time.